0: Hi friends. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. Today we're talking all things relationships. My guest is Dr. Taylor Burrows. She was a mental health counselor and a marriage and family therapist for 14 years in Florida, which I can imagine probably has quite a lot of interesting families. I wanted to get Dr. Burrows' professional opinion, I suppose, on the current state of the relationship market. I have my own opinions and you'll get to hear them, but it was nice to hear someone who has clinical experience dealing with the extremes of relationships distill those 14 years down into a list of things to do and not to do in a partnership. So expect to learn how routine incompatibility could be the first stumbling block, what she thinks are the primary causes of lack of trust, whether you can get over infidelity in a relationship, the relative roles of men and women and how they should be reflected, and masturbation. Yep, just going to leave that there. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, The more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing thousand companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. Please welcome Dr. Taylor Burroughs. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I am joined by Dr. Taylor Burroughs today. Ms. Burroughs, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: I'm very excited to have you on as well. I'm right in thinking that you've got essentially a PhD in relationships.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could say that. It's um, a PhD in marriage, couples and family therapy. So that almost covers them all.
0: <laughs> That's a, you're a doctor of relationships.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I, I like to include the relationship with oneself as well. So that's included in there, too.
0: Fantastic. How is your relationship <laughs> with yourself today?
1: It's going very well. <laughs> Yesterday, I, uh, I, I did a really good workout. I'm staying at this beautiful condo and I just had a lovely afternoon and then I topped it up with like a full home cooked meal and then did like a, an evening stroll on South Beach, which I bumped into a lot of characters, and it was lots of fun,
0: so did, I'm doing well. <laughs> did you take yourself out for a date?
1: <laughs> yeah, basically. That
0: sounds like the ultimate date night, but just with yourself. That's actually my perfect yeah, I like, evening.
1: I like to do that quite often, actually, so that's the norm in my world.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Um, so we're just going to riff on relationships today, I guess. We've had a lot of interesting characters on recently. We did a, a full series, a four-episode series on our advice on relationships. And I've recently had Caleb Jones on, who's a non-monogamy advocate, talking about his sort of views. Um, I guess, to start off, what does 14 years of clinical mental health mm. and marriage and family counseling look like when you come out the other side of that what what are the sort of experiences that you have in that
1: well it it evolved in stages basically you know like when you're a green intern they say you know you you have a supervisor you're kind of like half licensed Uh, so you're more of a student and you're kind of just learning the ropes doing a lot of observations and probably scared shitless (laughs) (laughs) to actually be in control you know one day when you're you know you're front and center basically and have to kind of cover the whole hour by yourself so you go through this process of confidence building really and empathy development and so uh, most programs the best ones will mandate that you have to go through your own psychotherapy and group therapy and stuff like that so you learn what it's like and you also process whatever maybe stuff you have from your own life experiences Because notoriously, a lot of therapists have been through a lot of adverse events. And if they haven't sorted through their own stuff, then it's dangerous because then they can kind of project that onto clients. So definitely important to do that. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I bet it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine if you had a medical doctor that had a contagious disease and then operated on you? It's kind of like that.
0: (laughs) That's exactly what it's like. You're totally right. You said that a lot of counselors tend to bring in their own problems. Is that a disproportionate amount? Are a lot of people potentially taking on this role or this job, are they searching that in an effort to kind of fix themselves?
1: Yeah, well, I won't say that all therapists are damaged. What I'll say is that it is quite common that when people experience trauma, they either go one or two directions, right? If, If they don't deal with it, they don't recover properly, then they can sort of, in effect, go through life as if they're damaged or handicapped emotionally, right? But it also has an opposite effect. If you do recover properly, if you do access the internal and external external resources in order to, you know, heal, you can actually become an even better person than you were before this thing happened to you, whether it was like a, a singular event, or whether it was just your parents sucked or you grew up in a poor neighborhood and witnessed some bad things. I mean, it could be anything that you experienced, but from the other side of it, interestingly enough, I've had so many clients, usually like the young teenagers that develop this desire to want to be psychologists because of the experience we've had in therapy and they're like, well, I want to help people or I want to learn about what's going on with me more. So that's kind of what, I, what you see a lot.
0: That's really interesting. Do you think that mm. perhaps some of the people that suffer a little bit more, whether it be with personal or relationship issues, are they more susceptible to suffering because they've got higher empathy and then that empathy leads them towards potentially thinking I could help other people with that? Is that one of the traits or is it something else?
1: Well, it's... Sensitivity is, I guess, related to empathy, right? So people who are highly emotional in that, in that sense um, would be sensitive to extremes and positive or negative emotions. And so they can be susceptible. And if they don't learn how to guard themselves from that and they don't develop those coping mechanisms that are healthy and proactive to prevent those types of influences in their lives, then... They can go through stages where they're, you know, emotionally stressed or distressed or, or even dysfunctional and disordered. And so, yeah, a lot of times people will gravitate to, the, to those types to sort of, you know, unleash whatever's on their mind or whatever's on their chest. And some of them just have a natural tendency of, of enjoying that process. And so they may then be attracted to this profession.
0: I understand. Yeah. So moving <laughs> on to the nitty gritty of marriage and couples and family counseling and stuff like that, what were some of the trends that you saw potentially? Why were people coming in in terms of couples and, and marriages? Why were people coming in 14 years ago? And then you only left this year, right? You stopped, you stopped being a full-time therapist this year. Is that correct?
1: It was last year, okay. last year, May. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely, I wouldn't say it was a big decision because it kind of happened gradually and just really naturally for me as I evolved as a therapist, uh, but also personally too. And I've talked about it a little bit as well. Um, but what I can sort of summarize it to say is that part of my process in being a marriage therapist was dealing with the pressure when I was single of how that, looked or how that impacted my work, not having had that experience. And so part of me, not consciously, but it kind of pressured me to get married. (laughs) And um, I think that was was in 2012, I got married. And then I ended up, you know, leaving the marriage. So it, it was a difficult time because it's obviously something that ha- carries a lot of stigma, especially if you're a marriage therapist and why are people going to come to you and talk about <laughs> how, how to have like a happy, successful marriage? You, you see? You, you understand what I'm saying now.
0: Absolutely. So,
1: but it go- comes from both angles. And so now I've had a lot of time since then uh, to process what mistakes I made, Uh, what was it that I needed to apply myself and how did I come to understand the actual profession of marriage therapy? And so I, I applied what marriage therapy said the whole time. So it kind of aligned with all of this stuff that I've been learning and adding to my repertoire over the years. Uh, so getting back to your original question The number one thing is that people are choosing the wrong partners. So that's why I've developed my approach about vetting in the coaching work that I do with clients, because you can't really fix something that's fundamentally flawed. And especially if it's only one person that maybe is motivated to make the changes, you can't do it. So it's, it's really frustrating. It's a waste of time, a waste of money, and it just brings up all this conflict in marital therapy, which is used as like a last case resort anyway, for the most part. So I've gotten away from all that. And now I'm looking at helping people at the dating stage find the right partner and then do things the right way.
0: So starting from a, a point where you've got a good foundation. I mean, it is anyone that's listening surprised to hear that if you have someone you're incompatible with, your relationship's probably not going to go well? I don't think so.
1: I think people expect that if they feel strongly enough, if they love, if they lust, if they're, you know, excitable and and whatnot, that they can make it work. There's some sort of magic wand that will erase all the problems.
0: But that's not the case.
1: No, it doesn't quite work that way.
0: Fundamentally, you've mentioned, number one, one of the, the first thing that people need to get right when they're looking for a partner is that they need to find someone they're compatible with. What does that look like?
1: Well, people ask me all the time. I talk about finding your or attracting your ideal partner, really. And that really stems from from you and you developing your ideal self. People really want that sort of cheat sheet of like, what are the things that you look for to find that ideal partner? And first of all, it's not just one person, but there's probably a limited supply of ideal matches for you in the universe. Not everyone is an ideal partner. Not 50% of people are going to be an ideal partner. So yes, it's going to be a smaller percentage. So because I know I, I, I people talk about the whole soulmate myth. So there's something in between one person for you and everyone's <laughs> for you right yeah. there's gonna be like maybe yeah. a thousand people out there or maybe a 10, people who knows yeah but it's definitely a limited supply and so you have to learn what to look for and it's based on you developing yourself according to your personality what fits best for you the lifestyle that you choose to lead your values belief systems uh and generally speaking that fluctuates over your lifespan. But usually, you know, in your 30s, maybe late twenties, you'll sort of solidify a lot of that. And so the more work that you do, rather than spending that sort of decade of escapism and whatever you want to call it, um juvenile immature exploration. We've all been there. experimentation. Yeah. yeah. Been like there. if we actually did more work in the self-development um part uh then we would probably do a much better job of, of attracting the right type of people to us.
0: Yeah. So I did a, a podcast with Daniel Sloss, who's Scottish comedian. Have you heard of him? Hmm. No, I don't think so. So he's got a Netflix special uh, called Jigsaw, and his Twitter bio has the stats of how many breakups and divorces his Netflix special has caused. That it's, it's, it's a, a, it's not a hatred of relationships. He calls it a love letter to single people. And he says that people get pushed into relationships because they don't feel whole without them. He says that there's the, this meta narrative that runs across all of society saying that you on your own are essentially not a whole person and that you need to find this person that is going to make you whole. Like, look at any TV Mm -hmm. show. He says, he talks about pitching TV shows to networks and it's like a comedy or something normal. And they'll say, we love it, but what's the love interest? And he's like, why does there (laughs) need to be a fucking love interest? It's not about love. But there's, it is so ubiquitous, right? This search for the partner that in Mm -hmm. every, even a show which is unrelated to love, there's got to be, there's got to be the love interest, right? That's that's one of the things that keeps it going. And yeah, he, he, Uh, agrees with you on what you say you need to be able to love yourself before you can allow someone else to love you and before you can really let someone in properly because if you don't understand Mm -hmm. who you are like how the fuck do you expect someone else to
1: exactly no i i I definitely agree with that approach
0: (laughs) yeah um so you've mentioned finding someone that you think is compatible that doesn't always mean i'm going to guess that doesn't always mean finding someone that's the same as you right because sometimes like opposites can work together and stuff like that
1: yeah, there's going to be issues that you need commonalities and and issues that you need polarities. All right, that's so cool. you can you you have to know what those things are. And I usually find that the lifestyle um, elements are the ones that you need commonalities on. So if it's like you have a healthy diet, you're an active person, uh, maybe you you like to spend some time just have, developing a routine and being more uh, productive versus finding any excuse to get out of the house and, and busy yourself with socializing or whatever. Although introverts and extroverts can be a very, very effective polarity. Mm. Um, it depends. It depends on a lot of factors, usually the maturity of the person, uh, because we fluctuate through our lifespans depending on on that characteristic. But yeah, I mean, the sexual polarity is obviously the most important one you're talking about like chemistry and sexual attraction desire uh, that needs to be really pronounced so that you you sort of magnetize towards each other and no matter what conflict is happening in the relationship that can always be like I mean people call it the glue but I like to call it the life (laughs) best
0: okay Yeah, yeah yeah glue glue when you're talking about sexual polarity is a little bit more of a sort of disgusting image isn't it You don't want to be talking, no one wants to be talking about glue in that situation. It's too, it's too much. It's too much for an evening time.
1: You're a visual person, I'm guessing. Well, look, I I can't help it when
0: you're using the word glue. Um, so when you're talking about sexual polarity, um, a couple of people who are listening, I know have read David Dada's The Way of the Superior Man. And in that he talks about masculine essence and feminine essence. Is that what we're talking about with sexual polarity or is it more nuanced than that?
1: Well, we can expand on that, but I, 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 it's important for, and, and obviously we're talking about by default heterosexual people, right? Mm. Uh, I don't, I don't really talk about the the spectrum of of sexual every orientation different iteration in, of, of sexual orientation, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, especially when we're talking about masculine and female energies or elements, mm. um, it, it it applies to any orientation, but. Let's just stick to the stereotype. So it's easy to discuss this.
0: Just just to interject there, one of the things that David says is he believes, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, that even in same-sex relationships or even in non-monogamous relationships, he is um, pretty certain that the masculine energy and the feminine energy still manifests itself. Two women, two Mm -hmm. men, a man and a woman, or two men and Two women or however it however it works. There's every different version of stuff that's going on now. But he's yeah. still pretty certain that the in terms of sexual attraction, you have a masculine mm-hmm. essence and a feminine essence. And sometimes they switch, but he's pretty certain that's the basis of sexual attraction. Is is that true in your opinion?
1: I agree. And and it just gets a little bit more complicated to talk about it when it's and then you use the word fluid, and then it gets even yeah. more complicated. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. But yes, with with same sex that is a lot more fluid, although it's still fluid with heterosexuals, because depending on the roles that you play and the different strengths and weaknesses that each partner holds, one, like the woman might actually lead in the domestic area. And so, you know, it might be a feminine household obviously like with if she likes you know girly things but she's in more control so that's more of a masculine energy so there's lots of layers to it it gets quite complex but in a simplified way if you're talking about a a, a heterosexual female bringing the feminine energy in it's going to be predominantly feminine not only feminine so each of us has both and then the the masculine having more, the man having more of the masculine energy. And so the more that a, a man is comfortable and confident, uh, bringing forward and living through that element of masculinity, and same in reverse with the female in her feminine, then that's going to be a, literally attractive to each other.
0: I understand. So we've got choosing someone that is compatible with you. And you mentioned lifestyle. I think that's it's so overlooked, right? Because it doesn't sound romantic. Like to talk about the fact that I like to go to the gym and you like to go to the cinema is like the least romantic thing that people believe should impact on a relationship. But the bottom line is it's a practical mm-hmm. consideration. Like if I'm going to spend uh, 15 hours a week in the gym and you're going to spend 15 hours a week cooking or with your friends or doing whatever it might be, those mm-hmm. would there's just less time to spend together there's less stuff going on so it's like a it's like a practical consideration right the the routines and the compatibility in terms of what you're into
1: yeah and you don't have to share interests like all commonalities you can have differences so that you have time alone and apart which is healthy but you don't want it to be predominantly separated and so i think that's what you're talking about and it reminds me of when i was i think i was probably like 17 or something i went on a trip to Switzerland with my boyfriend at the time. And we were together for like five years. And uh he's Swiss or yeah, he's still Swiss. <laughs> but
0: he's, he's still not. Still Swiss. He's recounted <laughs> being Swiss after he spoke with me.
1: <laughs> but um he I went and he was very, very active. And I'm active now, but at the time I wasn't that active. And so we we would leave the house for the day and he would go climb mountains and hang out with goats and I would go to the most beautiful picturesque tree and sit underneath the shade and write in my journal and take pictures.
0: <laughs> well, it's just a I mean in for some people maybe if they live their alone time that might work but I, it makes for a bit of a wasted holiday together right apart from the fact that you're sharing the the cost of the hotel room like you know, you're not really making the most of the trip.
1: Right. I mean, it's, it's okay if you do that, like I said, in small amounts, but if you really don't have a way to create that compromise with each other and you don't have a a general lifestyle that is shared, then it's going to create a lot of problems, a lot of resentment, a lot of power struggling. But again, it's all kind of coming back to that complementarity between the two people. So if, when you compliment each other, Uh, you're not going to be stuck in a power struggle because you're going to basically have a a default mode of decision-making and problem-solving where the man would take the lead if he's more of the masculine and dominant role and the woman is more feminine. So when you have that, it's almost like whatever your differences are should be no big deal. Um, So there are sort of layers where you, you start with the real fundamental one, when you're vetting, like, can you fit together, at least on this basic premise, yep. well, and then you escalate up and add all the other layers to see if you work well together.
0: Cool. So we've got finding someone that's compatible in terms of our interests and the way that we're going to spend time together. Then we're talking about sexual polarity, making sure that there's some sexual chemistry there. What's What's next on the list? Where would you Where would you look at next to ensure that we have a healthy oh. relationship?
1: The values are so important. Um, You know, you got to (laughs) know the politics, you got to know various things about morality, if you're conservative, if you're traditional, if you're family oriented, or you're more like an individualist. Um, a, A lot of things too, like some people just want, it's almost like you're it's kind of a blend between values and lifestyle, but your vision for the future, you have to have that shared vision for the future. So if you want to have a white picket fence with six kids, then you better both want that. And if you don't, then don't escalate the relationship.
0: Mm, yeah, if one <laughs> of you wants to go traveling around the world. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So you have to establish those things. And any unless you're you know hooking up on match.com or something, you're not going to be filling out some inventory. You actually have <laughs> to you have to talk to the person over time and, and have discussions about various topics. And, and you don't really want to give them the sense that you're interrogating them, but <laughs> yeah, you know right. there, there may be certain bullet points that you're looking for. Um, but you do it skillfully and in an appropriate way that you can at least enjoy the time and it doesn't feel like a job interview
0: I get you (laughs) interestingly something that's just come to mind there I was listening to Jordan Peterson on Dr. Oz the other day and first off for anyone who hasn't listened to it it will be linked in the show notes below and it is an epic podcast Jordan I I don't know whether it's that the stress of him being on the road. I know his wife as well, Tammy, is is really ill at the moment. But he breaks down crying a couple of times on the episode. And I'm like, wow, I would have thought they might have... Cut this or done something else, but they fully leave it in. And he's he's talking empathetically. He's caring about other people, and that's what's right. causing him to be emotional. But he definitely seems like his emotions have been raised. So if you're listening and you like JBP, go and give it a watch and let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your thoughts. It was it was surprising to me and quite moving to me as well. And then Doctor Oz starts welling up as well, and I'm like, oh my god, what's going on here? But <laughs> one of the stats that they dropped on there, I totally didn't know this. I wonder if you do. Apparently living together before marriage increases the likelihood of divorce. Have you seen this statistic?
1: I've heard about it. I don't know how I feel about that. Um, Is that true in your experience? (sighs) Well, I haven't really had a lot of people that didn't cohabitate before they married, so Mm. it's hard for me to compare but when we talk about getting to know someone and compatibility and all those kinds of things, it's, it is really important to have novel experiences together. Like if you want to travel, you want to endure some kind of stress so that you can see how do they handle those crises and, and how do you work together as a team. So if you're not going to live together, then you better be manufacturing some opportunities to have that, that sort of context where you have to come together as a team and manage the situation.
0: That's a really good point. It's, it, it's, so I couldn't believe it when I heard it. I was like, well, no, of course, of course. You got to live together. You got like, it's par for the course, right? You get, you move it together, then you get a dog, try the dog out. The dog's like a miniature version of a human. And then if the dog works, if the dog's okay, then you're like, right, well, we might try for like a proper one. We'll get, a, we'll get a kid and then you get, maybe get another kid. Like that's what, that's a, the, the linear progression, right? Um, the progressive overload of a relationship, but yeah, the stats seem to be pretty robust and the justification i think that jordan and dr oz had was the implication for the rest of the relationship is that i'm going to try you on before i commit and it apparently according to them allowed a overarching narrative of disposability and the fact that it's going to be i'm going to see how you get on and if this doesn't work then i'm going to go somewhere else I I, I, naturally it doesn't that's not how it seems to me but then I also haven't looked at the stats so it's an interesting one
1: I bet you it's measuring a lot of other things simultaneously that we're not getting at and and that's basically the the whole premise of of how I approach working with with people in order to create healthy and successful relationships is make sure that you're not you know, with someone who's basically withholding stuff, it's like a conditional mm. love or commitment. Uh, a lot of people in modern times, especially in you know North America and, and whatever, they're t- really trying to look out for themselves, and they aren't committed. And if something goes wrong, they are willing to get a better model or a version of, of a lifestyle that maybe will work better for them, rather than doing all the hard work before and then once you actually escalate to the point where you're willing to commit to that person, that's it. Like you're, you've are you done all of your homework, you've vetted, you've compared your options, you've established who you are and how you're going to manage any kind of critical sort of juncture that, that you would reach with that person and you know you're going to come through it on the other side. Whereas most people just sort of jump first and then figure it out.
0: Yeah. I wonder how many people that are listening – can see in themselves in previous relationships that they've got into that they've entered it with one foot already out of the door just in case. And I know that, and it's the same for me, right? Like it's a, it's a protectionist strategy against being hurt, like opening yourself up and making yourself vulnerable is a, it's a scary thing to do. And by having one foot out of the door, you've always got in the back of your mind, oh, well, I wasn't that bothered anyway. And you're if you continue to roll that model forward for long enough, it's always not going to work. And you're always going to say, oh, I just can't find the right person for me. And you're like, well, hang on a second. If you actually ended up committing, you might have had three relationships, five relationships or one relationship, which was perfect. But because you're there with one foot out the door, like, well, what chance are you giving it?
1: And trust, I think, is one of those factors that uh, gets sort of misused or, or, or ignored, neglected. And I find it's really important to develop that trust from the, from the start very gradually. And over time, people rush relationships a lot. And so, you know, if you start dating, whether it's, I don't know. People refer to dating and and with different definitions. And I did a little poll the other day on what it was, but it seems like the majority of people agree that dating means one person exclusively, but there are about 30% or the people that I Told, it was like a thousand people um, said. Thirty percent said it's multiple people. Sixty percent said it's one person. So we do need well, to make the, sure we're <laughs> using the same definition.
0: That that sixty percent are really angry at the thirty percent, and that's exactly where this no man's land. So we said it before in the UK. I don't know if it's the same in the US. It's called seeing someone. So seeing mm-hmm. someone is after casual sex but before an official relationship. So it's whatever that that bit in the middle is and it no one knows what the fuck that means. I don't know what it means. We spent we spent four episodes trying to work out what the fuck it means and we have no idea at all. It's just this no man's land of you not why are you not committed if you if you're just having sex with that one person but you maybe you're not ready for a relationship. Uh, I, I, to me it's like it's hedging your bets in in the yes. worst way possible. Like you, just, But you're not exactly. gaining. You've got all of the loss. You don't have the security of knowing that that person really cares about you. You don't have the ability to fully commit emotionally. You've got sex on tap, but you could have had that anyway. And yeah, uh, I, I just think it's a dangerous, dangerous waters to swim in. If you're seeing someone and you're listening, beware. There's sharks in those waters, okay? So just watch out.
1: And I encourage women when, when it it doesn't mean that there's multiple people involved from the man's side, but maybe there's ambiguity. They're not sure what quite they're dealing with, but their values are to be exclusive, to be monogamous. I I encourage women to stick to that. As long as you're, you're vetting uh, the man and you're feeling like you still, you're still curious. You're still interested. You still want to, to more time with them, give trust give exclusivity, do not hedge your bets, because that is sabotaging the relationship. Uh, no matter how you look at it, it's always gonna sabotage the relationship. Yeah. So men and women are a little bit different. I think they have a little bit more leeway The men to uh, sort of hedge their bets, I guess. But I don't think that it's the best solution for long, You know, in the long term. I think that if you keep that to a very short period, just to make sure, Um, The basic foundation exists between Mm. the two people, like you make your choice and then you go into an exclusive sexual relationship with that person. Uh, But a lot of times people are holding back trust or holding back the attachment or emotion until they know for sure. As if there's some kind of destination that they're trying to arrive yeah, at.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> you, you know? must be you must be this right this tall to ride the roller coaster. You must have been together for this long for me to be exclusive with you. And the worst thing is that if you've had that basis, if you've created the relationship on the basis of you sleeping with other people, like what if it comes out at some point? Like what if you get rumbled that and it's happened, like lots of the guys that I work with have had this situation and where they've done something towards the beginning of a relationship and six months, one year in, their girlfriend's found out. And it's like, well, you didn't tell me. It's like, well, we weren't going out. That situation, you didn't tell me, but we weren't going out, is never, ever going to be reconciled, ever, in the history of ever. (laughs) Like, it's just always going to get brought up. Well, what else are you keeping from me? One person's going to say, well, I didn't need to tell you because it wasn't time, we weren't exclusive. And the other person's going to say, well, I don't trust you. Fucked. Fully fucked.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to hammer this this point home a lot lately. Keep hammering away, Taylor. I, I think it's so important to, to stand by uh, – it's really the easiest way to exist, you know, to not have anything to hide, to be direct, to be clear, to be straightforward from the beginning – Uh, even when it comes to even though i i promote (laughs) exclusivity um even if we're talking about non-exclusivity just be ethical about it be upfront. it's you're still vetting your partner it's the same process it's just you're looking for someone who is comfortable and 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 values non-exclusivity and so the two of you can go about your business doing whatever it is that works for you and and be open about it until you decide I, I want to be exclusive with you if that's where they're going, which, which developmentally, you know, you're talking about sort of pressure in, in Hollywood and media to have like this love story. I do believe that naturally the progression of in humans is to be together. I don't think it's about being a singular individual for your entire lifespan, but it's not, you're not incomplete as an individual. You're in process and, there's a, it comes a point in time where you kind of reach a plateau of who you are, you know, even though you can kind of have novel experiences and kind of tweak this and tweak that and always be striving to eat better and sleep and do all the exercise and all of that stuff, you do kind of end up plateauing. And it isn't until, you know, you, you, you find that and attract that really great partner that challenges you and draws like, good and bad and, and complexity out of you and then you develop a, a family and, and and start to bring forward that that legacy that you really get to that different type of love, of service and commitment and loyalty and, and all that.
0: That's a really good point. I can certainly see myself. So I'm 31 uh, and I'm single and I can certainly see myself, um, what you're talking about there, that you can continue to... Um, have your adventures in life and kind of keep yourself interested. I've just come back from America. I did a four week road trip with one of my good mates in a five litre soft top Camaro going across America. Like, Oh wow. (laughs) Awesome. Cool way to do it. Yeah. But you're right. It is. That is a different flavor of all of the other adventures that I've had so far. It's still, I'm still on whatever level this level is level one or level 10 or level 100, but to (laughs) get to level 101, the challenge that you have from somebody else, how do we start a family? how do I negotiate a serious relationship with someone that's going to be something that goes on for a long time? I think that's a really, really good point. So I wanted to I wanted to get on to trust. We've touched on it a little bit so far. In your experience, what is the um, ability of people to come back from trust being broken in a relationship? How does that work?
1: It's extremely difficult. I mean, it depends on the on the injury. Uh, what if it's infidelity? Then, gosh, I was having actually a little debate with uh, Andrew Tate today on, on Twitter.
0: <laughs> Shout out Andrew; it'll be it'll be listening.
1: <laughs> Which is always fun. But he was saying that he actually said made a comment about um, all the relationship experts out there. Go go cheat on your woman and see what she does. If she if she leaves you, she never loved you. If She stays, then <laughs> oh she loves God. you.
0: <laughs> right? oh wow andrew you, yeah it was, you do not give a fuck my friend
1: well <laughs> we had a really you should read the thread it's really good i'll link it, I'll link uh, it in the
0: show notes below yeah
1: definitely but we we kind of came to a, a good sort of compromise and uh we were talking about men being kings and how in the history of existence all the kings had all the women they wanted and okay, whatever and yep. i said well not Not all men are meant to be kings, and that's okay. And women, not all women want to be with kings, right? Because we have our certain values. So if a woman has a lot of ego or pride or whatever, she may want that king of kings. Mm. But what what, I don't even... I mean, I guess I'm a regular woman, but I think I'm pretty cool. Um, like, what I'm looking for is, is, a, is a man that I can develop my own sort of empire with. It's not an actual kingdom that's gonna be ruling people. I want my man to be my king, and that is what matters to me. I don't wanna be worried about infidelity and, and having to share things. Like, That's not my value, so that's why I'm about exclusivity and monogamy and creating a family that has honor and integrity and trust and all of that. So people have choice. So it's not just, we're, we're not just ruled by our biology. We have, you know, morals, we have, uh, you know, all the sort of sociocultural implications that influence our behavior. So to just say and, and rationalize all of this hedonism, based on biology is just, you know, it's kind of an excuse. It really is. <laughs>
0: there's, a lot, there's a lot of moving parts here, isn't there? So the Caleb Jones episode, a lot of people that are listening will have heard that. And it was super interesting. If you haven't heard it, I implore you to go back and listen. It's it's a challenging thing to listen to, to hear the argument for non-monogamy. It was, it was challenging for me, right? Like to think, okay, so I love this person, but in some other version of the world, um, I'm going to give this non-monogamy stuff a crack and I'm going to try, but I have to let someone that I love sleep with whoever she wants. And I'm like, it, immediately it just gives this juvenile, visceral response. And I'm like, I, I, I'm I, only trying to do this rhetorically and I, I haven't got past the first fucking hurdle. So how people do it in the real world is beyond me. Also, some of the listeners may be thinking, I wonder what happened to Aubrey Marcus? You mentioned him a couple of times on the Caleb Jones episode. Well, let me tell you. Unfortunately, Aubrey and his wife, Whitney, announced that they were transitioning their relationship on Instagram the other day. But in case you're interested, they did a full podcast about it, which shows everything that I mentioned on the Caleb Jones episode about why I thought that relationship was doomed. Um, And that's a a callback to a couple of other points. But here's a point for you. Here's a piece of relationship advice that I'm sure that you can get on board with Dr. Burroughs. If you are breaking up with someone, do not do a podcast about it with them that's (laughs) fuck me everything everything in Aubrey's life at the moment is like just used as content it's so it's it's madness but yeah I think the thing about the kings thing there's two types of kings right there's multiple types there's a tyrant and then there's the noble virtuous king like both of them have the title but they're two very different people and i think that you've identified there you have one person who uses their power to get whatever they want and you have one person who uses their power to raise everybody else up and again Mm -hmm. we're talking compatibility and stuff like that you mentioned that infidelity in a relationship is a difficult point to come back from
1: yeah so you might not know where you stand on that until it happens Mm. Right, and and that can always be very difficult. So you might have a person who just wants to put their head in the sand and and not really deal with it, just deny it, pretend like they don't know, and go about their business. It's just easier for them to to. That's basically their co- their psychological coping skill is denial, uh, and so that might be one way for they for them to cope with it. And so they're okay, sort of dealing with it. They don't have, we don't have too much of an issue in, in counseling or or coaching to heal the relationship on that issue. But I promise you, that's going to bleed into other areas of their relationship that need some work. So I would want to look at other things as well. And if they're willing to, but not everybody is willing to fix the things that the inconsistencies that sort of lay at the foundation that make other problems surface. Now, you also might have the woman that like freaks out and throws things and yells and talks to everyone about what a piece of crap you are and you know sort of punishes you and and then that woman may be just very angry and she never really comes out of the angry anger phase and so working with her I have to get her to to look at taking responsibility and not only responsibility but some piece of it in order for them to find common ground to both make changes to heal the relationship and that's very, very hard for a person who feels that they were the one that was injured. Mm. They were the one that's betrayed. How am I supposed to say I need to do this differently? Because it wasn't my fault. <laughs> but if you do get through that anger stage and that takes some time, then you look at, well, what led to this infidelity? You know, what, what was the wedge that um, g- broke you guys apart that maybe caused it? Was, what was the sex life? between the two of you like before what was the communication like what was the general intimacy so you know you have to peel back the layers but then i said this to you before in the beginning if one person is willing to change and the other person is not for whatever reason whatever soapbox they're standing on pointing a finger at the other person saying they're the one that needs to change mm. it's not going to work
0: do you find that there's people who are i'm going to use carol dweck's Uh, words here, in a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. Do people tend to stay like that throughout relationships?
1: Well, if we're comparing it to that type of scenario, yeah, it's very hard for someone who's in a fixed mindset to basically evolve. Um, I, I, I like to call it the power struggle. And so a lot of times you'll see that from whether, I mean, it can be the man too, but you do see it a lot with women who feel that they're entitled and that the man should be uh, doting on making them happy and everything's offensive to that woman. And she feels like she should have just as much rights and control and wear the pants and everything's equal. That is a very fixed mindset that does not really budge mm. uh, until something major happens, some kind of rock something bottom. Something snaps. Yeah.
0: yeah but
1: for for men I don't know what you think might be the most fixed element of, of a fixed mindset in a man but uh, I mean if we're talking about the, the complement to that a lot of times it's it's the men who are more emotionalized and effeminized uh, they they're so um, indoctrinated into that mindset of um, being the sort of male feminist and trying to rescue women and mm. and play that role. But there's lots of different fixed mindsets. So it's not just that stereotype, but um, it can happen. People can be, develop a growth mindset after some kind of catalyst.
0: Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I'd love to be able to see where the fixed and growth mindset comes in, a, a, a typically a, a broad cross-section of relationships because – I'm sure the listeners at home will be able to think the same. I can come up with just as many people that are absolutely stuck in the mud as men as are women. I think it's a, a an affliction that plagues both genders uh, equally, um, but it manifests in different <laughs> ways, right? You, I think you're right. Like the the girl that's got the fixed mindset, perhaps might, um, yeah, they might have the I want to click my fingers, I want to be in control. The man might be the one that you should you should be attracted to me or love me the way that that like whatever I do, no matter how I behave and and tend to sort of push the boundaries a little bit more. So, yeah, you are right. There's a lot of nuances here. I mean, just going through what we've gone through so far today, 14 years of clinical mental health and family experience, I can only imagine what it's like getting home from work after that day. Like after hearing whatever, you know, six, eight, ten hours of this – this animated by two people that i mean do many people come to marriage counseling when they got stuff going right i'm gonna guess not
1: no but i did have some people that after things got resolved they would come as kind of like a check-in preventative semi-annual session which i encourage and now it sort of leads into my working with people at the very front end of things but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I veered off that track for a reason because it was just so disease model oriented. And so now, um, you know, working online with people and not being in that setting is much better because my quality of life is a lot better. And it's definitely more um, aligned with my values as well.
0: Are you slowly regaining some sanity after the last decade mm-hmm. and a bit?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I feel like I've, I've definitely grown a lot as a person and, and applying this into my personal life has been really conducive to, to success and, and feeling like I'm in a healthy place and I'm you know I'm dating and I'm I'm feeling like very optimistic and that these things are very helpful for people to to implement. And a lot of my clients are having results and they're seeing you know much, much better. Uh, outcomes in their relationship, so it's great to hear that feedback now
0: that's awesome so we've touched on compatibility between people in terms of their routines we've talked about sexual polarity and ensuring that you have some some sort of polarity some sort of energy which is drawing people together we've spoken about values and virtues like what's your life plan are you white picket fence are you adventures in himalaya type thing <laughs> uh, we've spoken about infidelity and trust and the issues with that as well are there any other um sort of key themes that you think that the listeners should be aware of
1: well if we 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 have to kind of talk directly about sex for a minute um, let's
0: talk let's talk directly about <laughs> sex for a minute dr Burrows, i'm here and listening
1: it's it's really important for women especially men i mean we work together but men kind of you know they're comfortable talking about sex they're comfortable having lots of sex but women feel somewhat restrained in their sexuality. And I've been trying to to discuss this a lot, to separate the sort of negative, slutty, explicit sexuality from the very sensual, healthy, feminine sensuality. Whether you call it sexy or or sensual doesn't really matter, but just sort of distinguishing the two between that sort of corrupt, objectified um, version that's sort of blatant and inappropriate. So women have been sort of inundated with this image. And even with men, they kind of do the same thing. They split their images of women into, you know, the virtuous it Madonna and the, and the sort of slutty, Madonna, yeah. right. Like the sort of having the, the slut and then the, the pure version of a woman. And basically women have been doing that in a way that they, they choose one or the other. They're not really integrating both archetypes. I mean, there's more than just the two. But if we just look at those two, women are, are sort of rejecting the explicit sexual element and trying to be very demure or the opposite. And so trying to integrate those two is a very difficult process for women because there's so much stigma attached to it. And we talk about um, promiscuity and sexual liberation and nobody really knows what to do. And and then women are judged if they've had too many sexual partners or if they're too seductive or their dresses, you know, too, you know, ex- like exposing of themselves. So learning for women how how to be selective with their sexual partners uh, and yet be very open and free with their sexual partners is a very hard process. And I and I think it's important to address uh, whether I work with women one on one. Or I work with couples for if you have that trust in a relationship, right, then you're going to have a much better time exploring that, that, you know, that complexity, because you should feel that your, your woman is, you know, honorable, and she's committed to you. And you don't have to worry about her doing anything inappropriate in a sexualized way with somebody else. But with you, she should be more Open and adventurous, and be able to be comfortable in her body and basically explicit. So you have you have to really accommodate that growth and and be growth to have that growth mindset there. You know,
0: isn't it strange that when we're talking about uh, the female sexual archetypes, that being capable in bed is also lumbered with the same label of being promiscuous or being a a slut or whatever the term is isn't that weird
1: yeah it's 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 something that we don't really feel comfortable talking about and so I mean I'm not I'm not like advocating for us to talk about sex with children but (laughs) I think it is important for women to be able to talk about it with their partners uh, if they're feeling shy or if they're feeling uncomfortable or unsure about things and why and for the man to be able to have that intimacy with her to make her feel comfortable to make her feel uh, that it's okay and you know you have to be prepared because then you have to sort of still see her as a mother, if you have children, but then she's your hot, sexy lover behind closed doors or whatever. There's a lot of roles, so, a lot of masks yeah. that,
0: that, that women have got to play, haven't they? Like the man kind of, if we've got, again, typical masculine, feminine energies going from the ways that they mostly do, you've got the man, and the man's kind of always doing that, right? Like he's fixing the car, he's picking the kids up off the ground, he's going to work, and then he's coming home and he's having sex. Whereas the mother needs to be a lot of, a lot of different roles, right? I I think that's, that's maybe Mm -hmm. one of the issues where you've got that they, they need to spin a lot of plates.
1: And if they're not, and they're repressing that, that's what happens too, in the demise of a relationship is she will do that. She'll sort of see her husband as the protector provider, and then she'll start fantasizing about the sexy gardener or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So, if you don't address these issues early on, starting from when you're dating, then they're going to create these cracks in your relationship that are going to create like this sort of risk for all those types of outcomes. And being able to, it's almost like you have to have that rhythm and harmony and be in sync with your partner so that you can kind of be really hyper, like sexual, with them, but then also talk about day-to-day logistics and <laughs> the boring stuff. Yeah, but and, we've run out of we've
0: you. run out of milk and we've run out of bread, <laughs> and it's your turn to clean the toilet. Like, yeah,
1: and come over here, sexy. Yeah, yeah. I need some of that. Yeah. You know, like you. Difficult discussion. It shouldn't be, and 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 it's 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 fun. It's playful, and that's what keeps the spark alive. And so you don't want to drag on all of that sort of boring life stuff for too long without injecting a little bit of that pizzazz and that sexiness in there. So, you know, women, we need to feel encouraged to do that. Um, and men have to learn how to sort of draw that out of us as well, because it's there. It's just a matter of feeling that comfort and, and that trust in order to, to do that.
0: How do you do that then as a as a man encouraging a woman or as a woman wanting to broach the subject of sex or sexual preferences or the way that their sex life's going uh, how how do you do that how do you get the courage to do that and how do you start the discussion
1: Well a man should feel um, confident in his sexuality. I do feel that it's important for a man to have a little bit more, you know, neither party has to have a whole bunch of experience, but I do think that it's good for the man to be a little bit more sexually confident than the woman. So to keep that balance and then for him to be able to project that throughout the relationship so that he's kind of, it doesn't matter if he sort of comes out of nowhere with something sexualized. It, and that maybe startles her a little bit or she feels a little shy or something, but that's going to create that sexual tension that, that's going to really help there in that department. And so the man, if he doesn't feel confident in that element with his sexuality, he needs to work on that. So that would mean that he needs to do that individual work first, like go to the gym, get your fitness right, get your health checked, make sure your t- testosterone levels are, are healthy and you're eating well, you're sleeping well and you know once you get all those things it should it should be revved up mm-hmm. and if mm-hmm. you you're also sort of encouraging your your woman to be attractive and feminine and whatever it is and hopefully you've already sort of established what you like and she's that not something completely different well, it's
0: doomed to fail but, if that way yeah
1: <laughs> exactly so you know, the best thing to do is not to criticize a woman directly. And I was actually going to say this before, one of the differences between the fixed mindset between the genders is women do not handle criticism. Well, in general, (laughs) men can handle criticism a lot, a lot better. I have like 80 something percent men clients and not, not very many women because of that. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see, but, you know, we need to get the women to be a little bit more open to criticism and self-improvement for sure. But anyway, getting back to the sex stuff. So, um, yeah, with men, as long as they're improving that those elements and making sure that they have what they need in order to be virile, then um, they can encourage their woman always instead of, instead of criticizing her encourage her positively so re- reward and reinforce the positives like if she wears something and you think she's really hot like give her that attention attention is like that that really powerful currency with women so be seductive with her buy her flowers take her out say lovely things whatever her love languages and her personality dictates you want to to reinforce those positives and then on the flip side if you do see negatives instead of directly uh criticizing her, pull back, right? So you're pulling back on the attention, instead of punishing, you're just taking away the rewards. And use external references to point out the negatives. So like, if you see a woman wearing something really ugly, or her hair is short and unattractive, or whatever it is, say, Oh, gosh, I wish she had much longer hair, she would just be so sexy if she would do this. That's a way to externalize it from the woman. And the woman's like competing and saying, oh, well, I do that. I better get a nice dress then.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, that's, a, that's an interesting approach of using this conduit on the outside mm-hmm. to somehow come and do it. So i have spoken about what men can do. How about if you're a woman? You could be demure or you could be totally sexually liberated, but you need to broach the subject of sex with your partner. Where do you, where do you start?
1: I think you just talk about it. Um, I, one thing that came to mind, though, that when you asked that, I have a very split opinion on masturbation because I know this whole no-fap thing is, like, a really popular, controversial Do topic.
0: get me started <laughs> on no-fap. Taylor, we will be here for the rest of the evening. <laughs> oh.
1: Well, this is my thing, okay? Yep. I, 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 I'm not against masturbation. But definitely one of the things that I think is distinct distinct between men and women is that masturbation can be extremely helpful for women who have repressed sexuality. Why? Because you have to kind of scaffold her level of comfort when it comes to any type of sexualized material. Like even if it's just her, like it's almost like learning how to act on on stage, like how to be a public speaker, being exposed and that vulnerable in a sexual way can be so anxiety provoking for women that she's got to desensitize herself in a good way, not in a bad way. (laughs) Um, So she can get used to it. So learning how to masturbate or what is she like, or even, you know, getting a little bit you know, freaky with herself, you know, like that will help like get her used to the idea. And then, and then if she kind of gets into it a little bit more, uh, when she's actually in the act with her lover and then the lover reinforces it and he's like, oh yeah, you know, he's sort of like encouraging that. Then she can loosen up a little bit more during the act, let her guard down, Climax easier, and then you talk about it afterwards. And like, oh my gosh, that was really cool when you did that. I just thought it was so <laughs> sexy, and you know, it just sort of gets your little, you know, endorphins and your oxytocin is like all on fire. And yeah, anyway, I understand. Oh, where's my- <laughs> 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 oh there's go my bad- My battery's going low now.
0: You'll be fine. Oh, your battery on your phone, you mean though, right? Um, so- yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Blushing now. No. Um,
0: Bad around the phone. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's interesting. Like the fact that not women are under sexualized, I think is what you, on the whole, they're less sexualized than men. I think is the point that yeah. you're making here, right? One thing that I think super interesting that I'd be interested to hear what you think about is, you know, like Cosmo magazine and uh, all of these sort of middle of the road girly magazines. Like every single one of those that I see when I walk past WH Smiths or some news agents, like, the seven best summer sex positions and things like that is that is that female journalists and and, and magazine writers trying to sort of take control of this and help women to educate themselves because that's been going on for like as long as I can remember seeing those magazines like 20 years 30 years more and that has that not yeah. really helped is that not the right rhetoric
1: no and, and and as soon as i s- answered your question i was like well the caveat is there's this whole other sort of sexual libera liberated <laughs> feminism thing that has taken of a- effect and so you have the hypersexual women that are super promiscuous and explicit but then you know what? It's not a healthy sexuality either. And it's not real. It's actually like a a, a fake, a facade of sexuality because they're doing it in a disconnected way. They're playing a part that isn't even, it isn't even something that is uh, representative of, of intimacy, right? It's just some sort of caricature of this explicitness. So, Right, a lot of that cosmopolitan and I I forget what, there was a headline yesterday or or maybe it was this morning talking about um, women, I don't know, women doing this or that sexual behavior and promoting it. And I think it's just, one, it's causing us to then become more promiscuous as women and having more casual, casual sex is really going to infringe our ability to find a proper partner, Uh, to attach properly to a romantic partner long term. And it also just desensitizes us to our own body. And emotionally, basically, if you, as I'm also like a sexual trauma recovery specialist, and part of sexual trauma, uh, is this, what happens is this uh, disorientation and and detachment between the body and your emotions. And then you sort of have this self-imposed um, objectification,
0: like punish- right? Like punishing then, yourself.
1: Exactly. And so I call it self-exploitation, but basically it's literally just you, you're separating, disconnecting from your body so that you can like kind of use your body and objectify it however you like, but emotionally you feel really guilty and shameful about it. And so it's disjointed and and it's dysfunctional. And so why are we even trying to do that voluntarily? You know, what happens to a sexual trauma victim is not something we should be trying to replicate voluntarily to ourselves. And so healing a woman's relationship to her body, to her sexuality is really my goal of helping women do that. And so learning how to be sexual with your partner is the key. And so as long as you have that healthy context, then, yeah, you don't have to disconnect because you're attached to that person, you trust that person, you love that person. It's not someone that's random or, you know, just used for a thrill. That's a very superficial uh, bodily response. And to have that distinct from an emotional attachment is unhealthy.
0: I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a really lovely <laughs> note to finish it on. So uh, Dr. Burroughs, people that have listened, they might want to get in touch or find out a little bit more about you. Where can they go?
1: My website is a great place to go, although I need to upgrade that a little bit. It's Dr. com. sorry. And uh, Twitter is a great place as well, so at Taylor Burroughs.
0: Fantastic. Well, all of this will be linked in the show notes below. If you want to go and check out uh, Dr. Burrows running with mr tate uh I'll make sure that that's linked in the show notes below uh but thank you so much for your time i think we'll have really helped some people today
1: i hope so but let me know i'll like to follow up if, if, if there's more to add.